Don't know about you, but I'm finding it really hard watching the news right now. For all our talk of how we've evolved and how tremendously enlightened we are in the modern Western world, our world is so full of violence, isn't it? I mean, just these last couple of months, we've witnessed some truly devastating events, haven't we? Cast your mind back to May the 25th, when George Floyd was tragically murdered in Minneapolis during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit banknote. Slightly closer to home, on June the 20th, three people stabbed to death on a Sunday afternoon in a park in Reading. Just a week later, six more people stabbed in a hotel in the centre of Glasgow. And then, even closer to home, over the last couple of weeks, a member of our church tried desperately and ultimately unsuccessfully to resuscitate the victim of a stabbing on the pavement right outside her house. Now, against this pretty bleak backdrop... I think the words of Jesus that we're going to be grappling with today are incredibly poignant. Because in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses head-on how to respond to violence and injustice. But before we get into it, let me very quickly make a pastoral comment. In all probability, these words of Jesus are going to be a trigger for all kinds of emotions. Of course, some of you probably are going to be fairly ambivalent about what he says, but for others, it's going to be a trigger for fear, anger, anxiety, maybe even guilt and shame. I just want to acknowledge up front the wide range of emotions that this talk is going to stir up. And I also want to say that Church Central is very much a safe place to process all of those feelings. I also simply want to appeal to you to hear Jesus out. Suspend judgment. Suspend what you know, or at least think you know, and allow Jesus to challenge your assumptions, your opinions, your bias. And then, I guess above all else, Let's not give the enemy a foothold here. Let's not give him the satisfaction of using this to drive a wedge between us, to divide us. Let's fight for unity. And let's resolve to show generosity of spirit if we don't quite see eye to eye with one another on some of this. All that being said, let's now dive into the passage and see what Jesus would say to us. I suggest we... Work through it slowly, line by line, starting with verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now Jesus here is quoting a command that we read not once, not twice, but three times in the Old Testament law. For example, Exodus 21 says the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. 
Leviticus 24 says anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. And then Deuteronomy 19, you must show no pity for the guilty. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, let's be honest, this all sounds pretty barbaric, doesn't it? But when you just think about it, if someone hits you, be honest, what is your natural reaction? You probably want to hit them back, don't you? I think there's a little bit of John Wick in all of us. Our immediate thought is towards revenge and retaliation, isn't it? Which I'd suggest is why things tend to escalate and the world is in such a mess. So really, the heart behind these commands is kind of, whoa, slow down a bit. You see, these commands are directed towards a judge in a court of law. In other words, it's not for the victim of the crime to race off and exact revenge there and then. No, it's the role of the judge to see that justice is done and that the punishment fits the crime. And to this day, this is still a key facet of our whole justice system. In 2 millennia BC, or whenever this was first around, it was way ahead of its time. It was incredibly countercultural and incredibly humane. But Jesus here takes this command and somewhat unexpectedly sets it to one side. Basically, he says, that was then and this is now. Now, if you remember, in all the other examples we've seen in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the Old Testament commands a step further. But in this one, rather surprisingly, he sets the whole thing to one side. He's saying, although this does have a place in the whole legal system, this is no longer to be the way my followers treat each other. You are to be a light on a hill. You are to put on display a whole new way to be human. So let's look then at how Jesus says his followers are to live. What exactly does he have in mind? Well, verse 39, he says, You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. Now look, many people perceive Jesus to be saying that his followers are to be like doormats. We're to just roll over and let people walk all over us. But that is really not what Jesus is saying. This is not passive. This is not doing nothing. No, this is a very intentional, active response. Jesus is encouraging us to look for creative, non-violent solutions to evil and injustice. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that this teaching right here was very much picked up on by the other New Testament writers. For example, here's Paul in Romans 12. He says, bless those who persecute you, 
Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Live in harmony with each other. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honourable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And then later on in the New Testament, Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 2 verse 19. He writes, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you see, a teaching in the New Testament is not to fight violence with more violence. The best way to fight evil or criticism or cruelty or shame or a mean, spiteful comment isn't with another dose of the same. Rather, it's with suffering, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped enemy love where you absorb that evil in the hope that you stop it dead in its tracks. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. Which, let's be honest, sounds great in theory, but how on earth do you actually do that in the real world? Well, Jesus goes on to give us four very practical examples to illustrate what this might look like in practice. Now, just to say, all four examples are taken from the first century context, so we do need to do a bit of work to translate them into our situation today. But as we're going to see if we do that, they are deeply challenging. Here's the first one. Verse 39. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, assuming that your attacker is right-handed, that means it's a backhanded slap. Now, just to give you a little bit of background here, Jesus is living in an honour-shame society. 
and hitting someone with the back of your hand was the biggest indignity you could ever show a person. There were literally laws against this. It was an arrogant, dismissive gesture of superiority. And so imagine someone comes up to you, slaps you with the back of their hand. What do you do? Well, basically you have two options, fight, or flight. You can either retaliate by hitting them back, or I guess you can run away or perhaps play dead. But Jesus here introduces a third option, namely turning and offering them the other cheek. Now, the danger in this, of course, is that you could then get hit again. But in turning your cheek, you at least ensure it won't be this time with the back of the hand. And in that way, you reclaim your dignity. What's more, your bold, courageous act exposes the misplaced superiority in your assailant and could ultimately lead to a change of heart. That's the first example. Here's the second one. Verse 40. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat to. Now back then, males wore two layers of clothing. There was an outer cloak and an inner garment or shirt. The outer cloak doubled up as a blanket to keep you warm as you slept at night. And really for that reason, there were very strict laws prohibiting anyone taking this from you. And so in Jesus' example here, the person suing goes for what's legal. They're after your shirt. So what do you do? Well, you can either give in and hand it over and end up all bitter and resentful, or you can lawyer up and fight them in court. But once again, Jesus introduces a creative third option. He urges his followers to give up their right to their cloak as well. He's essentially suggesting stripping naked in the middle of the courtroom. Now, there's every chance you could end up standing there without any clothes as your accuser runs off with them all. In which case, you expose, no pun intended, their greed and their ruthlessness. Or you force them to decide against taking everything, and in so doing, in that moment, you break the cycle of greed. That's the second example. Here's example number three. Verse 41. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Now again, just by way of context, first century Israel, as you're probably aware, was under Roman occupation. And under Roman law, you had no choice if a Roman soldier asked you to carry something for any distance up to a mile. Now can you imagine the humiliation of that? The resentment, the anger, the hatred. I mean, imagine you're up against it to meet a deadline at work. Or you're out enjoying the countryside with your family and all a Roman soldier has to do is come along, click their fingers, and you have no option but to drop everything and go a mile out of your way carrying a heavy load for them. 
So what do you do? You either carry the load while I guess seething inside, or you fight back by joining a local group of insurgents and starting a rebellion. But once again, Jesus provides an alternative that nobody in their right mind would ever have considered. On reaching the one mile mark, of your own free will, you choose to keep walking for another mile. In that moment, you are no longer a victim of oppression, but you're reclaiming your dignity and control of the situation. I'll tell you, this was provocative and subversive in the extreme. And then comes the final example, verse 42. Jesus says, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, as you may have noticed, previous examples, they were all to do with injustice, but now there's a shift from the oppressor to the oppressed. Let's say, for example, you come across someone who is begging in the street, or you're a landlord and you have a tenant who can't afford to pay their rent. What do you do? Well, you can either give them what they ask for and ensure they pay you back, or you can refuse and in so doing, further widen the gap between the rich and the poor. By now, you can probably guess, Jesus has an altogether better idea. You can give to them, but without any obligation to you. And in doing so, you are breaking the power of entitlement, greed and selfishness. So to summarise all of this, Really, I know two ways about it. Jesus is inviting us here into a radically different way of living, isn't he? It's not based on revenge or retaliation, but it's also not about being passive and doing nothing. Jesus is calling us to actively show grace, compassion, forgiveness, and love. He's calling us to create a radical alternative society where generosity replaces retribution. Now, all that being said, I do think there are a couple of dangers we could very easily fall into here. First danger is we can think of this as a set of rules for the whole of society and then bemoan the fact that others don't live like this. But that is not the point at all. This teaching is very much directed at followers of Jesus. This is for you and for me to work out in our own personal relationships as part of our personal discipleship to Jesus. That's the first danger, thinking it's for the world out there and not so much for us. Second danger is we can hear all of this and kind of store it away for that occasion when maybe a Roman soldier approaches us and demands we carry their gear for a mile or when someone takes us to court for our shirt. And in so doing, we completely let ourselves off the hook because unless we're incredibly unfortunate, that is never going to happen. But I think that is missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. As I've suggested already, he is giving us 
examples. They're supposed to spark our imagination to do something creative, surprising, wise, bold, radical, risky in response to people who treat us unfairly, but without resorting to using violence. And so we, we kind of need to get to the heart behind these examples and then try and work out what it looks like in our family and in our streets, in our workplace and in our society at large. It's like we need to be regularly asking ourselves the question, am I being the kind of person that Jesus's illustrations are illustrations of? Let's be honest, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Because our imaginations, they're, they're captive to violence and revenge because of the world we live in and because of the whole human condition. It's like our imaginations are shaped by the stories we tell and the films we watch, the video games we play, the way the history books are written and the way the news is reported. And so... We are programmed to think in terms of violence and revenge. And as a result, it's a real struggle for us to break out of this fight or flight way of thinking. But Jesus' teaching here, and even more so his life, which is so incredibly compelling. Remember, he literally turned the other cheek. He allowed himself to be stripped naked. He didn't stand up and demand his rights, culminating in the cross where he very much went the extra mile in carrying our sin and shame. Through his teaching, and even more, through the example of his life, Jesus breaks open a whole new horizon of possibilities for how to deal with all the evil in the world. Now look, probably comes as no great surprise that Christians down through history have disagreed on the implications of all of this. Like, are there situations where violence is unavoidable? Are there times and places where really it's the lesser of two evils? And what about self-defense? What if your life is at stake? What about stepping in and protecting your family? Is there a difference between violence and force? What about so-called just wars? I'm aware this raises all kinds of questions. And having opened all of that up, I'm now going to irritate a bunch of you by not addressing any of those questions. Other than to say, if you need some specific help or advice with any of this please do email hello at churchcentral.org.uk and we will certainly get back to you and provide all the help we can. But right now, I do not want us to be distracted from the key message here. What all followers of Jesus agree on, or at least all those who take his teaching seriously, what they all agree on is that to follow Jesus means to reject the either-or fight or flight option and look instead for a creative non-violent solution to put a stop to evil that is the baseline for following jesus and let's be real this is one of the hardest things we will ever do but at one and the same time it's also one of the most impactful things we could ever do. I tell you, 
when we choose to live like this is when things start happening around us. Followers of Jesus who have made the most impact in history are people who have chosen this course. I guess the question is, will you choose to be one of them? Let me close with some deeply profound words from Martin Luther King Jr. that were clearly shaped by this passage we've been looking at today. He says, the ultimate weakness of violent retaliation is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. And so it goes on. Returning evil for evil multiplies evil, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend.